Uh, if you haven't been with us for a little while, we're currently going through a series uh, called Keeping It Real. And we've been going through the book of James, uh, just looking at some of the practical wisdom uh, of the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, we're up to James chapter 3. We're going to be reading from there. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 uh, is where I want to read this morning and then we'll get stuck in. Follow along with me. It says this. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers... These things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is God's word. Well, I'm not sure about you, but as I consider what we've just read, especially verse 1, I'm just about ready to invite the band back up, pronounce the benediction and go home. Uh, I think I'm done. Because here I'm reminded that as someone who gets to teach God's word and anyone else who teaches God's word or aspires to do so, that we will um, receive greater strictness on Judgment Day. (laughs) This is my spiritual superannuation. I thought it was with Host Plus, but no, it turns out I'll be judged with greater strictness. And the reason that teaching carries such significant weight And the reason that teachers will be judged more strictly is that because the consequences of doing it poorly are of eternal consequence for the listeners. You see, a teacher is required to minister from the organ that is most susceptible to sin. And you only have to lightly glance over the Bible, Old Testament and New to discover that God is jealously invested in ensuring that God's people, his people, are well fed, well nourished on his words and they're not led astray. Now, this is cast in both positive and negative ways right throughout the Bible, but there's numerous places we could turn to. But just look at these words here from Psalm 119. This is from the positive end of the spectrum. Listen to what the psalmist says. He says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I gain understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. You see, when God speaks, it's always life-giving. It's it's healing to our wounds. It's, It's sweeter than honey in our mouth. And God's word is spoken, and as such, it then gets inscripturated. And we're told that the scriptures are breathed out by God 
profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Even at the very beginning, God spoke the world into being out of nothing. And because that's true, when someone is appointed as teacher, as, as they're appointed as God's representative mouthpiece, they need to be matching pitch with the way God speaks. Those two things need to be in harmony. They, a teacher needs to be dispensing the same life-giving, soul-piercing, and really just thirst-quenching truth that God would speak to us. In some sense, as if God himself were directly speaking to his people. This is an incredible responsibility, and it's a responsibility that I'm greatly honoured to have here at the project, to represent God's words. But having said all that, although the Bible does cast it in positive light, it's got a fair bit to say in the negative. Um, The Bible's got a lot to say about this, again, Old Testament and New, but perhaps for me personally, one of the most potent scriptures that's informed my life and my thinking is the dying words of Paul to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. This is what he says. These are probably some of the last words ever penned by the Apostle Paul. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, Paul's getting alongside young Timothy and saying, young man, you're about to enter a very contested marketplace. People are going to be selling some very shiny new toys. But for you, sir, you have to remain faithful to the scriptures. And he's saying that to some great extent that the fidelity of any teacher is marked first and foremost by their content. One of my um, heroes of the faith, John MacArthur, who uh, preaches over in the United States, when he uh, first decided he was going to enter the ministry at a young age, his dad, who was also a pastor, handed him a Bible. And he inscribed in the inside cover just seven words. Dear Johnny, preach the word. Love, Dad. (laughs) And for 50-something years or more, that's exactly what Johnny has done. Big Johnny Mac fan. (laughs) You see, the danger of teaching is that it's a ministry of the mouth. And if you deliver false content to God's people and it leads them astray and into sin, you actually invoke judgment on yourself as a teacher. Look at what Jesus had to say about it. This is coming directly from Jesus. Matthew 18, 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's Jesus speaking. The Bible takes it very seriously. Let me put it this way. When I get to heaven, I want the Apostle Paul to accuse me of plagiarism. That's when I know I will have done a good job. I want Peter to indict me with a copyright (laughs) breach and I want the Old Testament prophets to call me a copycat. I want what I'm saying to just be reflective of what's already laid down in the Scriptures. The way I see it, a preacher is not so much a composer, they're more like a cover band. They're just playing the sheet music that was handed down to them by the prophets and the apostles. In fact, at the, uh, the time of the Protestant Reformation, the reformers developed a little phrase in Latin. The phrase is sola scriptura, that is, scripture alone. 
They ask the question, where do we find the sole authoritative guide for doctrine and practice in the life of the church? The scriptures is where we find that. And so the challenge for me and anyone who teaches God's word and anyone who aspires to teach God's word is that we need to be making sure we're doing this. Sometimes it can seem that standing up in a pulpit, we look like we're um, six feet above contradiction, as they used to say of the old pulpits. But in reality, a teacher is someone who is under authority so that they can administer God's words to his people. And so at a practical level, I would invite you, bring your Bible to church. Follow along in the text as me or someone else is speaking and ask the question of congruence. Is what I'm saying reflective of what the Bible is saying? And if that's not the case, I invite you, honestly, come and tell me. I am not infallible. I'm not. The authority ultimately comes from the scriptures. And I, it has happened so far that people have come to me after a sermon and said, hey, can, can I just ask you about that? I'm totally okay with that. Because I'm not infallible. I'm a man under authority. And if I cease to be okay with that, tell the elders and tell them to get rid of me. I'll be no good to you. <laughs> you see, content matters. And yet, having said all of that, it's not mere content, is it? But the manner in which that content is delivered and the character of the person delivering it. A couple of years ago now, um, I was just scrolling through TGC sermons, something I recommend you do. And uh, I listened to a sermon by a minister by the name of Donald Whitney. And he was preaching to some young seminary students. And he spoke of a problem that does pop up in the life of young preachers. And I have to keep on guard for it myself. It's something he called the Rehoboam syndrome. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that Rehoboam was an Old Testament king who was the son of Solomon, and he was quite a vicious ruler. His dad was a bit of a taskmaster himself. He'd made the people of Israel work pretty hard. But then his son Rehoboam comes along and says, Hey, you know what? Your workload under my father was pretty intense. I'm going to make it worse. My father disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions, which is a really savage form of a whip not a nice guy and Donald Whitney said that too often preachers can develop this Rehoboam syndrome where we always want to preach God's word viciously as if every single sermon was an opportunity to evoke horror and have people leaving crushed now don't get me wrong there are parts of the Bible that are designed to bring a certain degree of fear and trembling and maybe even weeping but at the end of the day if you're preaching 2nd Corinthians 1 about the father of mercies and the God of all comfort your sermon should be comforting. <laughs> That's not an opportunity for vicious repentance, so to speak. right? If you're preaching on the joy of the Holy Spirit, you should probably be joyful as you're doing it. The mood should match the text. If you're preaching that salvation is not of works, lest any should boast, there really shouldn't be any hint of boasting in the teacher's voice. As if everyone else in the congregation is saved by grace, but I'm the exception to the rule. Saved by works. And one of the things Don Whitney said is that he'd heard so many sermons where through gritted teeth and growling at the crowd, ministers had said, God loves you. Really? Are you sure about that? Because I'm not seeing that that message has hit your heart just yet. So it's not just content, it's how that content is delivered. And listen, that can only truly happen when the truth of God's word has gotten deep into the heart of the teacher, when it's brought to the light, the sin of the teacher, because we have it, yes and amen, and when the particulars of the gospel are being worked out in the details of the teacher's heart. 
See, only then can a teacher truly administer God's word in a way that's helpful and edifying and life-giving. Without that, their ministry is graceless. It's a challenge for me. So there's really two checks of congruence that you should have as you're listening to a sermon. Number one, does the content match the content of the scriptures? And two, does the minister seem to be deeply immersed in the things that they're saying? Has it hit their heart before they're trying to prescribe it to your own? This is a challenge. Charles Spurgeon, uh, 19th century minister, he warned of the ministry of the preacher whose heart had never seen grace. These words have been pretty potent for me this week as a teacher who still has his training wheels on. Let me tell you. This is what Spurgeon had to say. He said, Oh, how unserviceable such a man must be. He has to guide travellers along a road which which he has never trodden, (laughs) to navigate a vessel along a coast of which he knows none of the landmarks. He is called to instruct others, being himself a fool. What can he be but a cloud without rain, a tree without leaves, with leaves only, sorry. As when the caravan in the wilderness, all athirst and ready to die beneath the broiling sun, comes to the long-desired well, and horror of horrors, finds it without a drop of water. So when souls thirsting after God come to a graceless ministry, they are ready to perish because the water of life is not to be found. Better abolish pulpits than fill them with men who have no experimental knowledge of what they teach. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. (laughs) Potent words, eh? Now, if you read Spurgeon in context, he was actually speaking about men who weren't Christians who somehow stumbled into the work of the ministry. And he was talking about that context. But I think he spoke better than he knew. I think this applies to the born-again preacher who's not letting the gospel get into the details of his heart. This is a challenge for me. See, it's only when the grace of God has struck a chord with the teacher that the teacher's words can extend grace to the congregation. And so, no doubt, aware of all these factors, the Apostle James sums it up for us just there in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. Sums it up. One verse. Listen, if, if God is calling you towards teaching, perhaps you're getting ready to enroll in, in Bible college and the like, and that is a really noble pursuit. Um, And I know for a fact that's being stirred in the hearts of men in this room. But as you move toward it, and for me, as I'm still kind of moving towards it with my training wheels on, we're going to think on James chapter 3 verse 1 often, that there is stricter judgment for teachers. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, I don't aspire to teach, Jaden. That's not on my to-do list. Not really interested in the whole stricter judgment thing. Didn't have that one uh, in the plan. So I'm off the hook for today's sermon. I'll just twiddle my thumbs for the rest of the day sitting in the pew. Well, don't rest too quickly. Um, you see, although James begins this section pretty narrowly focusing in on teachers, um, he's about to broaden it and just unpack how depraved we are with respect to our speech. Yes, the tongue can go wrong in the mouth of a teacher. We, we've seen that. But, and you can certainly apply the, the remaining of the, the verses 2 to 11 on teaching, but our tongue goes wrong in a number of ways, doesn't it? <laughs> What's it for you? Maybe let me list a few just to kind of um, get us in that headspace. Maybe it's the lying tongue or the boasting tongue, the gossiping tongue, the slandering tongue. The swearing and foul language tongue, the bullying tongue, the nagging tongue, the always has to have the final word tongue, the vicious tongue, the bitter tongue, the keyboard warrior tongue. (laughs) 
And then the tongue that maybe should have spoken up but failed to. And then the tongue that should have remained silent but spoke anyway. (laughs) And on and on and on and on. James continues his analysis in uh, verse 2. He says, For we, we, he includes himself, the teacher, all stumble in many ways. That is, we all are guilty of a variety of sins. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. You see, what James gives us here is a kind of hypothetical scenario, what some have called a first-class condition. And he says, imagine a man who is perfect in his speech at all times, never boasts, never lies, no corrupting talk ever comes out of his mouth. If you encountered such a man, you would have indeed encountered a perfect man because if you can control the tongue perfectly, which is the part of the body which is the hardest to control, then you would have to have stumbled upon a perfect man. Right? If they can control their tongue, surely the rest of their life is under complete subjection. But truth be told, no such man exists. This is a hypothetical scenario that James gives us. It's not designed so much for us to look at it and go, oh, this is doable. It's actually more diagnostic. Who can control the tongue? And what James does next, in vivid detail, he describes why this is so. And the first thing he says about the tongue is it has a serious power-to-weight ratio. It has got some serious power. And the way he demonstrates that, he says, take a look at the horses. Now, I've never been involved in any kind of equestrian or horse riding or any of those things. More of an Aussie rules and cricket man myself. But it's incredible what those riders are able to do. You can take... I took the liberty of watching a bit of equestrian on YouTube this week just to understand it. But you can get a small child peering up at a 500-kilogram animal... (laughs) And they are able to subdue it and guide it and control its pace, whether they want it to walk, trot, canter or gallop. Really, this animal, if it wanted to, could probably stamp or, like, stampede over a child and kill it. Like These beasts are powerful, but they can control their pace. And then they can teach them really fancy things like dressage, where it's PF and passage and the horses are doing all sorts of fancy things. You make this brute animal look like a total pansy. We can control... <laughs> These beasts, right? It's incredible. But the way they do that is just through a small bit in the horse's mouth. You control the mouth of that 500 kilogram animal, you control the whole animal. And the same can be said of our lives. Like a bit in a horse's mouth or a relatively small rudder that steers a ship, it's basically two analogies making the same point. Our tongues can and do direct the course of our lives, positively or negatively. And this is... um, extensively depicted uh, throughout the book of Proverbs, which is really the rich Old Testament tradition that James is borrowing from here. Uh, Most of the Proverbs are, in fact, to do with our speech. But if you had to pick a proverb that really sums up everything James is getting up up to uh, and alluding to in our passage today, you could really sum it up in one proverb, and that's Proverbs 18.21. It says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. That's what James is getting at here. And maybe for some of us, we've, we've experienced some of that life-giving fruit. I mean, husbands, have you seen your wife's face light up as you express your love for her? I mean, there are life-giving words on offer. In our household, if I say, hey, Alice, I'm taking you for a scenic drive and I'm shouting you a coffee on the way. <laughs> life-giving words. Gentlemen, get on that one. Like, these are life-giving words and we can eat of their fruit. Maybe parents, you've... Um, You've seen your children just sleep a little bit deeper one particular night because you went and brought 
words of assurance to their fearful little heart on a particular evening. You've seen the life-giving fruit that words can have. Maybe there's some managers and bosses in this room. Maybe you've seen productivity and KPIs go through the roof in your workplace and workplace satisfaction improves because you're always encouraging your workers. You're speaking positively over them. You're not yelling at them at 100 miles an hour. This is what James says. He says, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. There is life on offer when it comes to our speech. But as true as that is, James isn't really emphasising the life here, is he? (laughs) He's actually emphasising the death that we can taste. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And for all of us here, we've um, no doubt administered such words or been the victim of such words. I, I was bullied in high school, right up to year 12, to be honest. And let me tell you, I've seen these bullies years later, decade later, and I, I tense up. I'm ready to brawl. Like, sticks and stones won't break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Like, are you kidding? Like, words are sharp. I've experienced that. But let me tell you, I've, I'm not a mere victim. <laughs> I've, I've trailblazed through plenty of places myself. <laughs> Some of the things I've said over the years make me squirm at night from time to time, you know? I, I, I look back at some of the things I've said and I go, my tongue truly is set on fire by hell. I, what was I thinking that day when I humiliated my best mate on his wedding day? Like, what, what was I thinking? What was I thinking when I was umpiring an under-16s football game and in order to control the game I was swearing at the players? What was I thinking on that particular day? At my last job, man, I, I shredded some people viciously. Like my tongue isn't just a razor blade, it's a samurai sword when you want it to be. Now, for me, I, um, I try. I'm not the funniest dude on the planet. That's probably my younger brother, Billy. But um, I try and have relatively you know, quick, witty, play-on-words type of humour, right? So my mum used to say when we were growing up, oh, Jaden, you're hungry? Do you want an apple, maybe a pear? I said, pear? Pear of what? I'm always looking for the quick thing to say. All right, it wasn't my best work. But <laughs> I'm always looking for the quick thing to say. And sometimes it's funny and life-giving and it's a bit of fun. But let me tell you, um, if you back me into a corner and I need a quick, witty comeback, let me tell you, I can cut. <laughs> and I have done. Um, my tongue is set on fire by hell. What's it for you? Maybe it's your marriage. I mean, it's true. Couples are going to argue. We all have to keep the fire extinguisher of repentance on close hand for our trivial disputes. But maybe for some of you, your marriage is just a perpetual bushfire. And unlike the bridled horse who knows how to gently walk and trot and canter and occasionally gallop, you sometimes we're more just like a wild brumbly, brumby that only knows how to gallop. You just stick your anger in drive, doesn't have gears, and away you go. Your tongue just gets unleashed, and it's hostile towards your spouse. James says your tongue is set on fire by hell. Parents, maybe it's, maybe it's the way you speak to your children. Now, absolutely, it is your job to bring discipline to your children and, and correct them when they sin. But sometimes we can, and I, I'm not a parent myself, but I'm told that We can use our children's sin as a kind of license to kill. It's like, right, they've sinned and now I can go after them. And we can use vicious words and publicly shame them. And 
sometimes leave scars that are still with them into adulthood, when instead we could correct them in such a way that we package their discipline with grace. What about gossip in the local church? You see, the church is full of broken people, me included, right? And, and part of how we care for one another is, is bringing our sin to the light and there can be helpful and sometimes necessary degrees of disclosure between members of the church for the sake of the body. We have to discuss one another's sin at some level for our edification. But sometimes we smudge those lines a bit, don't we? We, we say things like this, did you hear what's going on in their life? <laughs> They're dealing with that sin. Can you believe that new associate pastor? What a muppet he is. Like we, we gossip in the local church. It's, it's not healthy. Proverbs 18.8 speaks to this. I'm reading from the CSB. I thought it just captured it in the English really well. He said, A gossip's words are like choice food that goes down to one's innermost being. And Ray Ortland commented, he said, Let's all admit it. We love gossip. We love negative information about other people. We love controversy. We find it delicious. It is a delicacy to our corrupt hearts. We gulp these words down with relish. But the contagion goes down into us and makes a deep impression and leaves us even sicker than we were before. You see, gossip will go through a church like a brush fire. And instead of the church being a safe institution that has beneficial degrees of disclosure for the sake of edifying the body and building it up... It just becomes a place of burning down. Even in the church, our tongues can be set on fire by hell. Now, if you're hearing everything I've said this morning and you're thinking, well, Jaden, that's all pretty intense. I mean, I guess I'm just going to have to try really, really hard uh, to conquer my tongue. Maybe just a, a teaspoon of discipline and a pinch of self-restraint. I think I'll be okay. I think I've got this one covered. <laughs> Listen, don't be so naive. Listen to verses 7 8 again. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What is James saying? The tongue is untamable. You can ride a horse, cage a bird, and even have a pet goldfish, but at the end of the day, you can't tame the tongue. It's an untamable beast. It's, it's like Jurassic Park, right? The, the velociraptor always gets out. <laughs> So is it with our tongues. In fact, one of the uh, Puritans, Thomas Manton, described it this way. He said, in God's grace, he, he hedged a row of teeth in front of our tongues, yet they still get out of the hedges. <laughs> that is the nature of our tongue. Now, as if James hasn't already given us enough of a vivid picture, like I understand the weight of this text this morning, um, he reminds us that while we're doing all of this, we're cursing people made in the image of God, which is really to have a crack at God because they're those he's made in his image. We are simultaneously singing his praises. You ever had that? Maybe you're driving down Ruffin Street on the way to work. Shout to the Lord of the earth, let us sing. Oi! You cut me off, you ugly muppet! <sighs> I sing for joy at the work of your hand. Only me? Okay. We, we do it. Our tongues are incompatibly bivocational, right? Like, we, like a dentist that tries to open a candy store. One minute where our tongues are employed in the services of God Almighty and then we're working a double for Satan. This is the insanity that James is talking about with respect to our tongues, right? Like, this morning I'm, I'm preaching in church. 
cool. This afternoon I'm going to the football. <laughs> Who knows what I might say, especially if the umpire, Wayne Davis is laughing, if the umpire makes a bad call against the Saints, I'm inclined to remind him that perhaps it would be prudent to visit Steve Turley down at Specsavers, right? Like, I'm, I'm that guy. Incompatibly bivocational. You see, in James chapter 1, which Pete covered for us the other week, he, James reminds us that sometimes when we're suffering, we can be double-minded or double-souled. But here we learn that we're double-tongued all the time. These are heavy words from James, right? So what, what do we do with all this, right? Listen to what James says next. Halfway through verse 10, he says this, My brothers. Now, now that's key. He's, he's changing his tone here, okay? He's moving from the heralding prophet to the warm, comforting, pastoral care priest, okay? He's changing tone. He had to drop a truth bomb, but now he's coming in to save us. He says, My brothers, these things ought not be so. Which... It kind of makes us scratch our head a little bit, right? Like he's just finished telling us we can't tame the tongue and now he says it shouldn't be this way. Like, come on, James, make up your mind. What, which is it? <laughs> uh, Daniel uh, Doriani, he kind of helpfully comments on this. He says, James' theme is that we must tame the tongue but cannot do so. There is a bit of a tension in this passage, right? He says we must gain control of an incontrollable problem. Well, how do we do that? Well, he continues in verses 11 and 12. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Uh, Many years ago, uh, I studied sports science uh, down on the Gold Coast, uh, down at Bond. And one of my uh, professors, he was a bit of an expert with respect to managing athlete recovery. Okay, There's a big question in in strength and conditioning. How do you prescribe appropriate training loads to athletes? Because truth be told, though you're a professional sportsman, doesn't necessarily mean you're a good athlete, right? David Boone comes to mind, right? You, You can't tell. Two athletes could be telling you they're exhausted, but who's actually telling you the truth? You've got the the really hard-working athlete who always wants to do too much um, and he'll tell you he's not tired and then you've got the really lazy athlete who says, I'm always tired and they've done hardly any work. How can we get a more reliable, objective marker for measuring where people are at? And so what my f- professor discovered is that in their blood you could measure this, this ratio. You, you measured the ratio of testosterone to cortisol and that would give you a really clear blood marker to tell you where the athlete was at and you could prescribe appropriate training loads or give someone a day off if they were exhausted, right? Now, here's the problem. How do you get the athlete's blood after a game? Like they're already tired. You think you're going to drop in a line after a game? No, they're about to get very tired if you do that. But what he discovered, there's actually a very strong relationship between what's in your blood and what's in your saliva, and so he could just take a little spit sample after each game, measure it, and know which athletes were tired and which ones weren't, right? What am I saying this for? If he wanted to know what was pumping through the players' hearts, he just needed to take a sample from their mouth. And James is saying the exact same thing here, right? Do you want to know how someone's doing in their heart? You don't need to hold a stethoscope up to their chest, right? Just have a listen. They'll let you know. Do you, do you want to know how you're doing? How's, how's your heart? How's your relationship with Jesus? Well, take a listen. We have a problem with our heart. I said um, good preaching is just reading from the sheet music. Well, James gets just about all of his sheet music from Proverbs and his older brother Jesus, right? So 
Look what Jesus said about this in Luke 6.45 and uh, Matthew 15.18. He said, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. See that relationship there, heart and mouth. Matthew 15.18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. You see, when we utter those boastful words, those aren't just words in a vacuum, right? Because by them, we remind the world that our hearts are seeking for approval from man rather than being content with knowing who we are in Christ. Those words tell us something about our heart. When we lash out nasty words towards our family and then we we start self-justifying by saying, oh, look, I only said that because you did this, our hearts are blame-shifting and seeking to establish their own righteousness. See, what comes out of our mouth proceeds from the heart. Listen, what am I saying this morning? If, if your heart has not known grace and is not continually immersed in grace, you will be unable to extend grace to others in the way you speak. That's what James is getting at here. So listen, if, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you feel the guilt and the shame from things you've said, you've seen the damage that it's done, and your soul may even just be exhausted from living in a world full of fires that you've started. Proverbs puts it this way, you feel ensnared by the transgression of your lips. If that's you, you can turn to Jesus this morning. He wants to give you a new heart. You see, Jesus came into the world as the only one who never stumbled in his words. He was the perfect man of verse 2, right? It wasn't a hypothetical scenario for Jesus. He fulfilled it, right? He was always perfectly bridling his tongue, always speaking perfect grace and truth. And he went to the cross to pay the penalty that you and I deserve for every wretched thing you and I have ever said and every wretched thing you and I will ever say. And the prophet Isaiah tells us that as he went to the cross, despite the oppression, despite the affliction, says that like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Jesus knew how to control his tongue even in that moment at the cross. And three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death. You see, if you believe on Jesus this morning, he'll begin to speak those life-giving, grace-extending words to you, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Debt cancelled, like we sung earlier this morning. Nothing will separate you from my love. You are mine. (laughs) That's how God would speak to you. He speaks tenderly to us. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel, uh, he spoke of a day of renewal when God would come and renew his people's heart. This is the work of the new covenant, which is available in Jesus. Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Listen, that day has come. If you believe on Jesus this morning and his finished work on the cross, you get a new heart and he will enable you to speak tenderly as he does. Why doesn't the band come and join me and perhaps the elders could get ready to um, distribute communion? And to the Christian this morning, let let me remind you that you have that new heart and that Jesus continues to affirm those same gracious, life-giving words to you, no condemnation, debt cancelled, nothing will separate you from my love.
Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Though we've been given a new heart and we're indwelt by his spirit, we, we down-regulate it a bit. We, we don't sow to the spirit and we end up sowing to the flesh and of the flesh we reap decay and destruction. Let me encourage you this morning, if you've, if you've down-regulated your new heart, maybe it's been a while since you've invested in it and maybe your life has been something of a bushfire, turn to Jesus whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, turn to Jesus this morning and walk in repentance, knowing that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You know, in the Old Testament, it was um, a very rebellious people of Israel who had gone astray. And what does God do? He speaks to him, to his adulterous people, so he describes it, and says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And so if you're feeling convicted under guilt and shame of things you've said recently or maybe even years ago, turn to Jesus this morning and let him start to speak tenderly over you. And so with humble hearts and with his help, as people who are continually immersed in his own gracious words towards us, let's be people who can then extend those same gracious words to other people. This is what Paul calls putting on the new self. Look at Ephesians 4.29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, if you're in Christ this morning, you have the opportunity to stop burning and start building. And with his help, you can build some spectacular masterpieces. Rather than the small sparks that turn into bushfires, you can begin to add just little Lego blocks of grace with the people you engage with and you'll start to build some things up. Build your spouse up. Build your children up. Build your fellow Christians up. Extend that same grace that was extended to you in Christ Jesus at the cross. How can you dispense and extend grace this week in the things you say? You want to boast? Boast in the Lord. You want to gossip? Go and gossip the gospel to someone. You want to speak up? Speak up for the voiceless. If you have a history of being a rampant keyboard warrior, go and write a well-thought-out, referenced and peer-reviewed book. (laughs) Let's stop burning and start building. And when you get it wrong, not if, but when, keep that fire extinguisher of repentance close and on hand and be encouraged to know that perfect speech is a destination you will not reach until the other side of eternity. That's when our tongues will be tamed. That's when we'll be like our Lord.